0: And we come back after a break of a few weeks to these studies on the book of, Ki- of Kings. And I might just explain this evening that I not I don't think that we shall get very much farther than the end of Israel. So we're hoping to get from where from about Jehu's reign to the end of of the kingdom of Israel. If I remember rightly, we ended (coughs) with Athaliah's reign, uh, Athaliah of Judah, Um, if I remember rightly, uh, when we last broke off the studies. (coughs) Now, I'm probably going to move rather quickly this evening through the actual history of the reigns of those kings as they alternate from Judah to Israel and back. Um, And then, at the end, we're going to spend a little while, if the Lord um, permits, uh, just drawing some lessons, and some very vital lessons, I trust, from the history of the divided kingdoms. There are some very important ones. Particularly in these days that are very, very practical and experimental as far as we are concerned. Now if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 9, <coughs> you remember we, I believe, finished, came to the end of Jehu's reign. <coughs> might just simply say about Jehu that he was a man who did the will of God through his own zeal. And if you look at the story of Jehu's reign, you will find that he is a man full of furious energy. The one thing that stands out about him is the very first thing we read. Um, You remember when someone said, it is like the driving of Jehu, as the watchman looked out. He said, it is like the driving of Jehu, for he driveth furiously. And this is a characteristic of Jehu. He took the Lord's name in vain. His was a fleshly energy and a natural strength that was flung into the service of God. Indeed, at one point in his history, you remember, He speaks to another man very much like himself and says, Come, see my zeal for the Lord. Now he did much in his zeal for the Lord. He destroyed the whole house of Ahab. He wiped it out. He went far farther than any of his predecessors had gone. He not only wiped out the house of the royal house of Ahab, But he destroyed all his familiar friends, he destroyed all those who in any way had a remote connection with him, he destroyed all the priests and anyone with any office in the old uh, reign of um, Ahab's house. And you'll also remember that awful bloodbath when he devised a great came a great trap to bring all the leading Baal worshippers from every side of the country to one great dedication service um, at Samaria. Do you remember that in the middle of it all, um, a signal was given, and the soldiers that had winged the house of Baal moved in and massacred every single one of them. Not one got out alive. Now this man was a man who was doing the will of God. He continually, all the way through his reign, he speaks about the Lord's word. He says, you remember what the Lord said about this. And then he'll say, you remember what the Lord said about that. This is a tremendous lesson to us. Here is a man who is a child of God. Here is a man who has been taken up by God, in God's sovereignty. Here is a man who is performing the very purpose of God, in the sovereignty of God. And yet he is a man who knows absolutely nothing of the cross, in his life, He knows nothing of any brokenness. He knows nothing of any limitation upon himself. He knows nothing of discipline in himself. He is a man who has the wrong kind of zeal, zeal that is not according to knowledge. Now that in itself is very instructive. There are many who would tackle the present conditions amongst the Lord's people with the zeal of Jehu. They would like to wipe out all its erroneous. They would like to, as it were, have a spiritual bloodbath and get rid of everything which in any way uh, is uh, um, not quite pure or not quite in alignment. But the Lord's way is not that way at all. Jehu (coughs) is condemned by the prophet Hosea later on for his reign of blood. Then you remember we move on really from Jehu. You remember that his reign marked the beginning of the end. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 32, you will find that it is the Lord. It says the Lord began to cut off Israel from that day. <coughs> from that day, um, it was as it were the last great downward run, the last. Uh, phase of Israel's history. The two-and-a-half tribes, you remember these two-and-a-half tribes, we're going to see quite a bit of them uh, in, the, in this particular study this evening, their territory is captured um, in the day of Jehu. The people are not deported, the territory is captured. There's a lesson there. You know why? They were people who settled down rather swiftly on the wrong side of Jordan. They were prepared to go over and fight the battles on the other side, but they rather liked that side of Jordan, and they settled there. And we shall find this evening that they are the first to go. So the first inkling of impending doom comes when the territory of the two and a half tribes for the first time is in enemy hands completely. Then we came, very simply, to the reign of Athaliah. (coughs) Athaliah, the daughter, the granddaughter, I'm sorry, Athaliah is the daughter of Ahab. Jehoshaphat, and we shall see a bit more about him a little later, Jehoshaphat was a godly man. And he was one of the kings of Judah who was described as a good king. In his day, there was a tremendous amount of reformation and a cleaning up of the whole land. But Jehoshaphat had a very, very real weakness. And it is a weakness that many of us, I'm afraid, afraid, are deeply infected with. And that is a lack of discernment. The result was that he longed with all his heart for the unity of God's people. He longed with all his heart for the unity of God's people. And he did three things to try and somehow wed the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, together. The first was he went out to war uh, with Ahab against Syria and nearly lost his life. That was a terrible warning to him. Uh, He was marked out and they they were told of a little crack core was told by the king of Syria to just not take any of anyone else but the king of Israel. And they mistook King Jehoshaphat for the king of Israel. And he nearly lost his life. If it hadn't been that he cried out to the Lord, the very last moment that the Lord saved him, he would have lost his life. But he lost much of his army. And he went back a crippled man. The second thing he did was he combined his navy with the navy of Israel, if you remember that story. And they went down uh, the Red Sea together to bring back, as you know, the gold of Ophir, the peacocks, mates, and all the other things that they wanted to bring in for the rather extravagant and luxurious living of those days. And they thought it would be a very good idea as they were the Lord's people. Why shan't we combine forces and do this thing together, get provisions together? Why do, does Judah have to be apart and why should Israel be apart? Let's combine forces like we combine forces in the army to fight common foes. So they sent the navy down together and the Lord was very much against it. And a terrible squall hit the navy and the result was that Judah and Israel lost their navy. The whole thing went down in a squall. And you remember, one of the things in the book of Kings that we're told about Jehoshaphat is simply that he learned his lesson and he refused to allow his navy to combine ever again with the navy of Israel. But the third thing was far, far more serious and far more subtle. Jehoshaphat had a son who was going to reign in his place. Athala, uh, Ahab had a very, very remarkable daughter called Athaliah, Mm -hmm. a very remarkable woman. And he thought it would be an exceedingly good thing if Athaliah of Israel and uh, Jehoram or Joram of Judah should be married. Well, perhaps most of us now, we're very clear about this. We would say, oh, we can see it admire what is wrong. But I wonder, when it comes to practical situations today, whether we are so clear-sighted. This was a very good thing. They were both the people of God. Why not bring Israel and Judah together in the best way of all, the way that all nations do? In the old days, the best way to somehow make an alliance with one nation of Europe or another was to marry uh, uh, the uh, the royal princess or the royal prince of another country. And they thought this would be the best way to end trouble. Little did they realize that this was Satan's greatest attempt to destroy the Messiah. Mm. The Messiah was yet far, far, far off in the future. But Azaliah's introduction into the royal line was the greatest attempt of Satan to wipe out the messianic line. Jehoram was a wicked man. Ahaziah's son was also a a wicked king. Both of them were evil. They were under the influence of this woman. The wife of one, the mother of the other. When Ahaziah uh, was murdered, Athaliah came to the throne. And the very first thing Athaliah did, for the first time in the history of Judah, it has happened many times in the history of Israel, But for the first time in the history of Judah, Athaliah indulged in a bloodbath, and she wiped out every single member of the royal house of David. Now, this is a tremendously important thing. It meant that of the line of David there was not a single one remaining except for one little baby of a few months of age. Many people wonder how that baby escaped, but in Oriental Harum, it probably wouldn't have been quite so difficult. That baby was smuggled out into the high priest's care, and hid in the temple, where no one could get in, and was watched over and looked after by the high priest's wife. That little baby was to be Joash, who was to be the hope of God. For do you know that in that particular point of history, the All of God's purpose was centred and focused in a babe of a few months of age. Wipe out that child, and it wiped out the royal line of the Messiah. So we see that Athaliah was the enemy's greatest attempt, first by wiping out the messianic line, and secondly by wiping out the true worship of the Lord. She brought in Baal worship and much else. Joash, as you know, came to the throne when he was only six years of age. Athaliah was executed at his coronation, and under the very good government and guidance of Jehoiada, the high priest, Joash proved to be a, an exceedingly good and faithful man. He restored the temple. He once again bought in the half shekel, which Moses said, there ought to be for every single man in the land that should pay a half shekel toward the house of God. He re-established that. He bought in the money. He repaired the house of God. All the breaches in the walls, you know, he got the carpenters and the stonemasons at work and the whole thing was done. All the gold and silver dishes and uh, instruments, utensils that had been stolen and desecrated were rededicated and uh, restored. And uh, everything looked as if it was going to be very, very wonderful. But Jehoiada died. And when Jehoiada died, Joash turned back. And the end of Joash is a very sad story. He is mentioned by the Lord Jesus. He was the one who murdered the high priest. Do you remember when the high priest witnessed against him? He had him stolen in the house of God. So the Lord spoke of the righteous blood of Abel, from Abel to Zechariah, the high priest, slain at the altar by the people, at the command of the king. Joash was assassinated. We always read what we say. And he was assassinated. So there's a story which is rather terrible. Then we come back from... Uh, Judah, we come back to Israel, to Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu. These two kings, Jehoahaz and Jehoash, if we look at chapter (coughs) 13 of two kings, we find both of them are evil. In Jehoahaz's reign, Israel is in a terrible condition. Her army now is reduced from thousands to just a little tiny group of faithful soldiers. Yet the Lord promises Jehoahaz, although he's an evil man, the Lord promises Jehoahaz that he will not meet him. He will carry him through and he will deliver him. Jehoahaz dies. Jehoash reigns in his stead. And Jehoash, in Jehoash's reign, Elisha dies. You remember the story of Jehoash weeping at the death of Elisha. He never, never took any notice of what Elisha said, but when he died, he wept. Uh, But in his death, you remember, Elisha said that what, that the Lord was going in grace to use Jehoash to smite Syria three times. Now, at present, we're not drawing too many lessons from this. We're just telling, recounting facts, from which a little later we're going to draw some lessons. Jehoash was going to be used of God, in spite of the fact that he was an evil man, a compromised man, a man in error, he was one of God's people, but in spite of all that, he was going to be used of the Lord to smite the Assyrians three times. Indeed, through Jehoash, much of the territory that was lost in Jehu's reign was restored. It was through uh, Jehosh that that territory was recovered. Then, if you go on to chapter 14, you find (coughs) that we are taken back again to Amaziah of Judah. (coughs) Amaziah, (coughs) we're told, was a good king, but he left the high places. Whilst he evidently allowed the worship of the Lord and was himself involved in the worship of the Lord, he permitted the high places to carry on. And we're told one very interesting thing about Amaziah, from which we shall learn a lesson again a little later, that he deliberately antagonized Israel. He was on the other side of the extreme. It wasn't that he uh, was seeking to foster good relations. He felt that far from having good relations there, Judah should go to war with Israel. And he wrote it as war was almost a sport in those days. He said, could you come and face us? Let us face each other. It was just a sporting action in war. We'll we'll see which army is the strongest. The result was that Amaziah was terribly worsted in that battle. And indeed, was so worsted that that Israel overran Judah, took Jerusalem, destroyed some of the walls of the temple, and took much of the gold and the silver that was in the house of God. As a result, Amaziah was assassinated uh, for his foolishness, The people assassinated him. Then, if you look in chapter 14, we go back again to Israel, to the greatest, politically the greatest king of Israel. (coughs) Strangely enough, the scripture only gives seven verses to Jeroboam II. Yet, Jeroboam II is the greatest king politically in the whole of Israel's history, from St. Solomon. His was a reign of great splendor. At the beginning of his reign, he restored all the territory, right to its greatest extent. He got it all back again, completely. And then the rest of his reign, which was quite a long reign, was spent in luxury and extravagance. (coughs) The Lord, it says, heard the groaning of Israel. And he therefore decided to give Israel a period of prosperity and peace which they have not had for years and years. But it did only one thing, and this is very interesting. Circumstances never do anything to us but bring out what is in us. Let us always remember that. We are very apt to blame circumstances. Whether they are the circumstances of your childhood, Or whether they're the circumstances of your job, or whether they're the circumstances of your home, or whether they're the circumstances of the church, they can only bring out what is in us. They don't initiate anything. They only develop what is inside. It is very interesting that in the days of evil and compromise and pressure of every kind, Israel uh, just becomes progressively more compromised, more evil. But the moment she's given peace and prosperity and a very real increase in honor, the corruption in the inside just seems to grow by leaps and bounds. Now, Jeroboam's reign is the great uh, sphere or time of Amos and Jonah's ministry in the scripture, the only ministry we have recorded of Jonah the prophet is the little book about his sojourn in Nineveh. But if you look at this map, you will find that Nineveh is a long, long way from the promised land. Um, It expressly tells us in Kings that Jonah the prophet prophesied in the reign of Jeroboam the second. Evidently, the word of the Lord came much through Jonah uh, to Jeroboam. And not only that, but we find Amos also prophesied in Jeroboam's reign and Hosea. So we have three great prophets who, as it were, come into the Seedon in the reign of Jeroboam. Amos, Jonah, and Hosea. What a wonderful ministry that is, when you think of it. When you think of, for instance, of Hosea. Of all his heartbroken cry of love for the backslider. Of restoration for the one who will only turn back to the Lord. Of the Lord's everlasting love, His refusal to give up his people. What a ministry. Exercised in days of extravagance and luxury and every form of vice! Amor brings up the vice more clearly than any other prophet. He underlines heavily with great emphasis, the evil of his day. Both the prophets, Amos and Hosea, saw quite clearly that the prosperity of Jeroboam's reign had done nothing but brought out the corruption. All it had revealed was that that Israel was so utterly corrupt, utterly corrupt, that only the most terrible purging by fire could ever do anything as far as the purpose of God was concerned. That's why you get those very sombre, dark notes in these prophets when they just simply say that there's no hope, The things got to go into the fire, The things got to be judged with a most terrible judgment. But in both those prophets, there's a wonderful day star, a morning star, that arises at the darkest point of their ministry. And that is, as they look right through the gloom and the darkness, they see, right through it all, beyond it all, they see a wonderful day of restoration, when a people purged and purified. are going to come back to the Lord. In actual fact, it was Judah. But uh, we will have to deal with that when we come to the exile period, as to exactly how the prophet's ministry concerning the restoration of the people of God, including Israel, was exactly affected, but they saw through the darkness to the day of God's purpose fulfilled. Jeroboam's reign, then, is a remarkable reign. Uh, Really, it is remarkable, for one other thing, Scripture doesn't say much about Jeroboam, but it is remarkable for this point, that it is the beginning of prophetic literature up to now, really, through the whole history of the people of God, there has not been any prophetic literature. That is, all prophecy has been by word. Men have spoken. Elijah and Elisha are a wonderful example of men who spoke. They suddenly came upon the scene and they spoke the word of God. Now, with Jeroboam's reign, a written ministry begins. Amos, ministry, was written. I think some people have gone found it very hard to believe that something can be prophetic when it's, when it's being written. Yet, in some cases, although uh, we cannot be absolutely certain, it may well have been that some of the prophets never actually spoke in public. That is a remarkable fact. We have no actual evidence for it, Yet it may be that some of the prophets did not actually speak in public. Theirs was a written ministry. Certainly, what they said in public, if they spoke in public, was later written down uh, by them. So we really, as it were, now move into the period of prophetic literature for the first time. Messages from God committed to writing put down into black and white by educated, and in some cases, cultured men. Of course, you get the whole range in the prophets. Amos was a country shepherd. Isaiah was a very, very cultured courtier. You get these two, all these differences amongst the prophets. Some very highly educated and cultured men with very aristocratic backgrounds. Others very, very... Um, ordinary people with a country type of background, all taken up by the Lord and used of God. When (coughs) we go on into chapter 15 we find that we have left Jeroboam who died rather remarkably of old age Um, we are back in the In Judah, in the kingdom of Judah, and we have now, we are now in the reign of the most remarkable man politically in Judah's history. It is interesting that Jeroboam should be the most remarkable man politically in the reign of Israel, and Azariah, his counterpart, should be the most remarkable man politically in the reign of Judah. This may be explained by the fact that all the great national powers around Israel were at their weakest point, so that it just gave time for Israel and Judah to blossom politically, without the worry of continual feuding and warring on their frontiers, which so drained them of all their resources.
1: Azariah's
0: other name is Azariah, and you all know who Azariah is, for it was in the year of his death that Isaiah saw that great vision of the Lord. Azar was a remarkable man. Uh, He um, was undoubtedly um, the greatest influential king of Judah's reign, since Solomon. Uh, The prosperity of Judah was unrivaled since the days of Solomon in Isaiah's day. And so, we can imagine Isaiah as a courtier, an aristocratic boy, being brought up in uh, surroundings of sumptuous luxury. The ladies made up very heavily, they perfumed, they had much beautiful dresses. If you read Isaiah, you find it all, oh, the whole of the life of the nation now has become very, very... Uh, thought of pretty and beautiful and luxurious and comfortable, and uh, with it there was a tremendous amount of corruption and uh, sin and evil and hypocrisy. One of the most interesting things about Azar is that he was a good man. But because of his prosperity, he he was led into a very foolish uh, way. And many of us are like this. The Lord doesn't keep us very low at his feet. Uh, prosperity and increase find us out. This King Isaiah suddenly decided one day that he would do something that was quite common in the nations round about. He would offer uh, the incense in a censer to the Lord. And so he went into the house of the Lord and it says something for the priests on Isaiah Day, that they rebuked him to his face. And he was furious. It says he was rough. But before he had time to vent his fury upon the priests, a white leprosy broke out in his forehead. And again one admires the courage of the priests, who without much more to do, just took hold of him and hurried him out of the house of God. The scripture says rather amusingly that he also was willing to go rather quickly as well um, because he was so surprised at the leprosy that's broken out. From that day, this great and good king was locked up in his palace. A separated, excluded man (coughs) from the rest of his people. And his son, Jotham, had to reign as co regent It is a most interesting fact and one I would like many of you to go away and think about. Why is it that the Lord deals so severely with the kings of Judah when they are good kings and so leniently with the kings of Israel when they're all evil? Go away and think about it. Why does the Lord deal so severely with the good kings of Judah and so leniently with the wicked and evil, iniquitous kings when you think of Ahab? and others of Israel. There is one of the deepest and most wonderful lessons that any child of God can learn. Why does the Lord deal so severely and sometimes harshly with us when we're so faithful to him, and seemingly so leniently with those who are so compromised and so vague? So, Azar's really, Azar's greatest point the greatest point about Azariah's reign is that two great prophets began to prophesy. One was Azariah and the other was Micah. They began to minister in the reign of Azariah. Then if we go on into chapter 15, verse 8, we leave Azariah and we come back again to Israel. This alternation is very difficult for us when we're reading through kings, so just keep it clearly in our mind who we are reading about. But when we come back to Zemariah, we're back in Israel. Now we deal with a period of 40 years only, and well, it's actually 35 and a half years, uh, to be precise. And in this 35 and a half years, we have five kings and four changes of dynasty. In other words, now the whole thing has snowballed to such a proportion that nothing can stop it. The whole thing is just confused and chaotic. First of all, Zechariah, who is Jeroboam's son, comes to the throne. He only reigns six months, and he is murdered by Shalom. We don't know anything about Shalom, but he only reigns a month, and he is murdered by Minahim. Menahim reigns a few years. Uh, he has a little bit of peace and in actual fact dies a natural death, strange to say, and is followed by his son, Pekahiah. Pekahiah is murdered by a cavalry officer, uh, a man called Pekah, who takes the throne. And Pekah, in turn, is murdered by Hoshea, who is the last king of Israel. A very sad, unhappy story all within thirty-five and a half years. And so you can just imagine the state that the whole country was in, politically as well as economically, um, as this kind of thing went on. The whole thing was a hotbed of intrigue and division and disintegration and disaffection In every way, it was something that we can only describe as tragic. So, you see, those uh, days... um, are the, the point at which Assyria suddenly revives in power. Um, the empire, the Assyrian empire, had been for a while latent. It had fallen on very bad days. Things had broken up, its power had decreased, and in many ways it was like a sleeping giant. Then suddenly, again, the whole thing is quite modern and contemporary, an Assyrian general called Pull, uh, seizes the throne of Assyria, and names himself, titles himself, Tiglath-Pileser the Third. With him, the whole power of Assyria is suddenly brought right back onto the world scene, or the Middle East scene, if you like to put it. Uh, he mobilizes all the forces. He immediately um, once again re-establishes uh, the borders of Assyria and one of the first things that happens is, is his march, in, in his onward march to the Mediterranean he comes up against Menahem and the only way that King Menahem can save Israel is by them becoming a vassal state of Assyria And so the gold and the silver of the Lord's house and all the precious vessels of the Lord's house are all sold uh, and given over as tribute to Assyria. And then a 50 shekel fine is imposed upon every citizen of Israel. Now this is rather amusing, because 30 shekels was the price of a slave, 50 shekels was the price of an ass. So really, in many ways, the fine imposed was a very sarcastic uh, move by the Assyrians to discredit and degrade uh, Israel uh, in their own eyes and in the eyes of their neighbors. They paid a 50 shekel fine for every citizen in Israel. That's every wealthy landowner or free man had to pay 50 shekels uh, to a king who paid it in turn as a fine to develop Palisand. Then again, um, in Pichar's reign, you note here that there's a brown star. Those of you who've been in these studies, you remember what these different colours stand for. This is the first deportation. In both Judah's history and Israel's history, the captivity of the land was in stages. In Pichar's reign, Um, Assyria came up against them because they um, stopped paying the tribute, and they took all of Galilee, Naphtali, and the whole of the two-and-a-half tribes of Transjordan out of their hands, and they deported the whole population of Transjordan. Um, perhaps some us find it very hard to understand this deportation of people, but it happened in many ways in the last war, uh, when quite a lot of deportation went on in some uh, uh, places merely of nations. In the same way, in those days, it was the policy of Assyria and Babylon to deport whole nations at least all the influential people of a nation, and settle them uh, thousands of miles from their home, and then settle in their land uh, people from another part of the empire. In so doing, they were breaking up the national consciousness of the different areas of their empire, and they were were hoping by doing that to stop any form of rebellion by just breaking up the national consciousness and destroying a national sense. In Pekah's reign, then, the uh, trans-Jordanic tribes, the two-and-a-half tribes, vanish. We never find them again. They're never mentioned again in Scripture. They vanish off the face of history, out uh, of the Bible and from history itself. We do not know what happened to the two-and-a-half tribes, except they were taken away into captivity and are never again mentioned. This is a very, very interesting thing it is always wise to go right on with the Lord. Never to settle down to half measures, never, never, ever to settle down with something which seems to be so near what is the promised land, and yet, in actual fact, is so insecure. In days of prosperity and triumph, when the whole people of God are moving over to possess God's inheritance, it might seem to you that just to settle down with the little that you've got, where you are at present, would be a good thing. Everything seems quite secure. Everything seems quite stable. But you wait till the storm comes. You are the first to go. You are the first to break down. You're the first to clap under the strain, Because you've not gone over into the land. The safest place to be is near Jerusalem. So let's learn that lesson then uh, uh, from the two and a half times on that side. They were the first to go. Then another interesting thing is that Micah begins, the prophet Micah begins to prophesy in Peter's reign. You will see that his ministry is also here in the reign of Jotham, Ahab, and Hezekiah. Ma- Micah had a, prophet, had a prophetic ministry to both Israel and Judah. Then if you go on in <coughs> in Scripture to into the 16th chapter, you're back with Jotham of Judah. He was a good king, and he repaired the house of God. That's really all that we're told about him, except that he left the high places. He did repair the house of God. But Jotham was followed by Ahaz, who was the most evil of all the kings of Judah. It is interesting that he was so evil that he offered his firstborn son as a burnt offering. This is the first time in the history of Judah that any king has offered his own son as a burnt offering to a foreign god. There was nothing more terrible than the sacrifice, human sacrifice. We won't go into it this evening, but it was really the most abominable, most terrible form uh, of of so-called religious worship. He not only gave his son as a burnt offering his firstborn son, But he also encouraged the worship in the high places with all its religious prostitution and depravity and everything else. Uh, He encouraged it. He burned incense himself. He worshipped on those high places himself. He led the nation in that way. He deliberately made Judah a vassal state when there was no need to. He made her a vassal state to um, Assyria, and he did it by giving all the gold and the silver that was left. In the house of God. The third terrible thing about this man Ahaz was that he saw, when he went to Damascus, he saw an altar, an Assyrian altar, and when he saw it he sent a copy of it back home to Jerusalem and asked the high priest to make a copy of it. So a copy of this Assyrian altar was made and it was placed in the house of God and the brazen altar of the Lord was moved over and put in a more insignificant position. All the offerings and everything else, burnt offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, meal offerings, and so on, were offered on this Assyrian altar. And the king used the brazen altar of the Lord as a kind of fortune-telling uh, tent, I was going to say, a booth, uh, means of divining. Again, that was an Assyrian custom. Then he changed many other things. He cut, it says he cut the panels off of the base of the labour. No doubt it's been suggested to pay uh, the tribute money that was necessary. But these terrible changes took place inside the house of God. What did it actually imply, putting an Assyrian altar in the house of God? Well, really it meant that Ahaz was obeying the command of the Assyrian king to worship the Assyrian gods with their own gods. By putting an Assyrian altar, he was really giving his allegiance and the allegiance of Judah to the Assyrian gods uh, as well as their own. And so, lastly, we come back to Hoshea of Israel in chapter 17. Strangely enough, he is the last of the long line of Israel, yet he is not as easy as the rest. He, it would seem, attempted uh, a last-minute reform, but uh, he got nowhere. And it says at the end, whilst he was prepared to pay tribute, he conspired against Assyria suddenly uh, and tried to ally himself with Egypt. That was his end. Assyria came up against Israel laid siege to Samaria for three years until they died of starvation by the thousands and ate their own children to try and keep themselves alive, as Jeremiah said would happen. And in the end, uh, the whole of Israel ends. Now, the interesting thing is this, that when the end comes for Israel, the whole land is deported not the common people, but all the nobility and aristocracy and the artisans of the land, uh, craftsmen of the land, are deported bodily <coughs> into Assyria. They were people, as far as we know, in Mize, in the cities of the Medes, and also in Mesopotamia. Come and look at that map afterwards if you want to see where they were. Then into the um, land of Israel, into what was originally the kingdom of Israel, Assyria planted a whole lot of different nations. And the result was, and for this you must understand it, (coughs) because it helps you to understand your New Testament, the result of this was what we know as the Samaritans. They were a kind of hybrid people. They were half Jewish and half Gentiles. They were the mixture of the people left in the land with the um, Gentile colonizers that were brought in by Assyria. And then this amazingly compromised type of religion grew up in Samaria, whereby they feared the Lord, it says, and worshipped their own God. So that Samaria became a byword with all good Jews, even in the day of the Lord Jesus. No good Jew would pass through Samaria. He would go right out of his way, a long journey, to get out of the way of Samaria so that he wouldn't have to go through Samaria if he could possibly help it. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were considered to be worse than dogs because of their background. To the Jew, it was the most terrible thing of all, it was caricature. Here were people who said they worshipped Jehovah. And all the rest of it, in actual fact, the whole thing is one awful mixture of truth and error, of <coughs> what is right and of what is wrong. So we really find that we have come to the end of Israel's history. Now, what lessons can we draw? And we we'll spend the last few moments drawing some pretty, um, I trust, pretty big lessons. One stage where the could of that drawing, is getting a little hard. Um, I think we can draw just a few lessons um, from uh, the history of the divided kingdom. That is going right back to Jeroboam and Rehoboam. What are the lessons we can learn? The first lesson we can learn is this. In 250 years, Israel has had 19 kings And every one of them has been evil. And there have been nine different dynasties. The interesting thing is that Judah has also had 19 kings and one queen. And all except Appaliah, who was not of Judah anyway, were good. uh, all of them were of one dynasty. They weren't all good, but they were all of one dynasty. Nineteen kings, and of those kings there were nine changes of royal house, nine changes of dynasty. Seven of the nineteen only died naturally. The rest were murdered, assassinated, or um, died of some terrible judgment of God, of disease. Then, on top of that, Twelve of the nineteen reigned for less than twelve years. In fact, one reigned for seven days, one reigned for one month, and one reigned for six months, and two or three reigned for two years. Now, add that all up. What does that mean? It speaks of instability. It speaks of insecurity, doesn't it? It just simply speaks of something which is all the time chopping and changing, restless, frustrated, unhappy. Something that has no permanence. Something that has no essential nature that can go through. It is something that all the time is coming up against it and breaking down. And then something else has to come in. And that goes. And then that breaks down. And something else has to come in. And that goes. And then that breaks down. We learn that all the way through it what one man does he reaps if he doesn't reap it himself his child reaps it or his grandson reaps it but whatever he does it comes back like a boomerang on his own head all this speaks of instability now let us draw a very very big lesson from this if we start on the wrong ground we will always reap instability always Instability and insecurity, disintegration and division are always the sign of wrong ground, always. If we start on the ground of division or divisiveness, we shall be divided and divided and divided and divided until there are not two of us left together. Just let us start together on the wrong ground. What is the right ground? Now that is a question I want you to ask yourself. Go away and pray about it. Kings is all about right and wrong ground. What is right ground? I'm not saying that the kings of Judah are good kings, all of them, but I am saying one thing. Even the bad kings of Judah got through. There was a permanent about even the bad kings. The dynasty never changes once because they're on the right ground. When you go on the right ground, you go through. If you are on the wrong ground, it ends. Israel was a division. Because Israel was a division, it was divided and divided and divided and divided and divided. Till in the end, in the last 35 to 40 years, the thing just split up into a a thousand fragments. Each man murdering the other. Trying to take power. If only the Lord would teach us in these days what is the right ground, what is the right ground. Dear brothers and sisters, it is not enough to have Christ. Now now think of what I've said, it's a terrific thing to say. It is not enough just to have Christ in the sense of of spiritual uh, life. The children of God were as much the kingdom of Israel as it the kingdom of Judah. We must also have the right ground if we would have the right life. We must not only have the right life and the right kind of nature, we must be on the right ground. You know in uh, Scripture, Jerusalem always speaks of ground, when Israel built Samaria as an opposing capital and centre of worship to Jerusalem, that was the day of their undoing. Even the division of Judah and Israel could have been healed if they had only recognised Jerusalem as the ground of God, as the place of the house of God. But Israel refused to do it. Now is not. they are not unsafe people, they are not unbelievers, they are the children of God on the wrong ground, they've got the same life. Their father was Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They have the same law, they are the same covenant people of God. They have the same life blood in their veins, the same nature, but they were on the wrong ground. Because they were on the wrong ground, everything went to pieces. Frustration, restlessness, impermanence. This is one of the greatest lessons that we can learn. Division, insecurity, uh, instability, uh, all come from being on the wrong ground. We can have the life of God on the wrong ground. Let us remember that. And then let us also note that the Lord has made all provision for stability and security and increase. This is one of the most wonderful facts of all. Isn't the Lord never gives up his people? Why do some of the Lord's people, they like to exclude each other and exclude each other and exclude each other until really just one wonders where they're going to get in the end. The Lord never excludes any of his children. This is the most wonderful thing. He embraces all his children. Even his children are on the wrong word. Some of the people you don't think are the Lord's children, the Lord calls his children. Okay. There are some Protestants who dislike Roman Catholics, and they refuse to admit that there's a single child of God amongst Roman Catholics, which is one of the silliest and foolish things that anyone could ever say or express. God has his people in the most remarkable places and amongst the most remarkable setups. Here you've got the evidence of it. And furthermore, the Lord has made provision for the stability and security and increase of his children wherever they are, if they will only come to him on the right ground. That is all. That is all he requires. If they will come to him on the right ground, they will be brought into the stability and security of God. God doesn't cut us off from his life but we are not protected if we're on the wrong ground. God will give us his life even on the wrong ground but he will not protect us on the wrong ground. Let us remember that. Idolatry, looseness, compromise. Are the small things insignificant at their beginnings that work out to the breaking up of the people of God? Everything can be traced from those small beginnings. When Israel, when Israel set up another centre of worship, that was the day that they ended. That was the means that God, that Satan used destroy Israel. Then another lesson I want you to see is this. When Judah falls, there is a certain hope of a returning remnant. When Israel falls, there is no hope. That is one of the most wonderful things in Scripture. You see, here in Judah, you have the people of God, oh, they're so poor. They haven't got the spiritual and moral character. Which they must have if they're going to go through. But they're on the right ground. But they haven't got the moral character. Very well. The Lord will put them into a fiery furnace. But out of that fiery furnace will come a remnant. And they will come back. And they will repeople the land. And from them will be born the Messiah. Israel goes out. And Israel is never heard of again. Some of us hope that one day those lost tribes will be restored, but we wonder sometimes whether we're right in hoping that. They've gone out, they've vanished. You can't find them anywhere, as with this British-Israel theory and many other theories have been made aware of the lost ten tribes. They've gone. They've vanished. When Judah falls, a remnant will return. When Israel falls, there's no return. God will still take care of his people in exile, Esther tells us that. But uh, the people who will return will be the house of Judah. That is very, very wonderful and something we want to take note of. All that ever remains of Israel is Samaria, the Samaritans, a hopeless, compromise mixture. And then again, another lesson we want to learn together is that in the whole history of Israel, God's faithfulness, God's grace, and God's love are wonderfully expressed. I do wish that the Lord's people were narrow where they should be narrow, and broad where they should be broad, were narrow on the things they should be narrow on and broad on the things they should be broad on. The trouble with the Lord's people is that they're narrow where they ought not to be narrow, and broad where they ought not to be broad. You see, God's faithfulness, God's love, and God's mercy are wonderfully expressed to Israel. Wonderfully expressed. How are these things expressed? How does God express himself? In three ways. Now, just look at these three ways in which God expresses himself. First, his word. Now, you and I would say, if you don't uh, come together on this ground, then you won't hear the word of the Lord. We can never say that. Do you remember our brother Egon said here, he knew a new Roman Catholic priest in Austria who was preaching the word of God with all his might. God's Word is given because God is sovereign, and God takes up the most remarkable instruments at times to voice His Word. And sometimes many of us, we've been taught about worldly methods, we've been taught about the way that the Lord won't let us do that, and then we see someone who seems to do them all and break all the things we've ever known the Holy Spirit teach us, and we think, well, why? Because God is sovereign. You can't say because that uh, evangelist or that great speaker can do that, that, and that, and that, and the Lord seems to be with him, I can do that, that, and that, and that. point is, on what ground are you? That determines it. If you're on that ground, you can do that in God's sovereignty. Many people try to do those and try to use those, but they don't get the Lord's assent. Some are raised up of God, and He's with them. And we must. Hush ourselves and be quiet. We must not attack them. We must not say uh, wrong things about them. That's God's sovereignty. They are expressions in the 20th century of the faithfulness and the mercy and the love of God for all his people wherever they are found. Wherever they are found. No matter where they are found, it's the expression of God's love and mercy. His word. Look at the line of Israel. And look at the great prophets of God that God gives to a gainsaying, contradicting, compromising people. Elijah, the greatest prophet. Elisha. Hosea, that man of a broken heart. Amos, with his great cry that one day God's going to do something. Do you know these men's names? are the most wonderful indication of the Lord's faithfulness in days of decline. Do you know what Jonah means? A dove. Mm. There he sat in days of the most terrible vice and evil and error. And here he is, a man who represents the Spirit of God, mm. brooding over the chaos. Brooding over the chaos, hovering over it. longing. And what is Jonah's great message? Even Nineveh the Lord will say, if it will repent, how much more strength? You see what, I, what we're getting at? And think of Micah, what is his name, who is like the Lord, who is like the Lord? What a name, yeah. what a mission, who is like the Lord? The end of such tragic, tragic story. No, the Word of God is the wonderful evidence of the Lord's faithfulness. To the, hip. the master tape at this point was turned over, and approximately 90 seconds of the message is missing. We would like to have a God who only thinks as we think and can only see one thing. Oh, because the Lord blesses, it doesn't mean you know necessarily that the Lord is holy with what He blesses. The Lord blesses evil people at times. It is an amazing thing that in this world, and the way that things go, and the leniency with which the law treats some evil people, and the severity that he t- he deals with those who are faithful. So that's the next thing we find it in Ahab's reign, in Jehoahaz's reign, Jehoash's reign. We find it also in um, Jeroboam, Jeroboam the reign. The Lord delivering his people all the time, being with them, even though they're evil. And the kings are evil. The leadership is evil. And then the third thing I want you to notice is the long-suffering and faithfulness, the long-suffering faithfulness of God to his word, to to different men. It's an amazing thing that the Lord comes to Jehu, a man so filled with natural energy and so evil in many ways, and he says to him, because you have... Uh, really honoured my name, even though um, we can't say that your method's right. I will see that your son sits on the throne to the fourth generation. Now that gives a lot of people a headache. They feel the Lord shouldn't do that kind of thing. Why did the Lord come to Jeroboam at the very beginning and say to Jeroboam, "If you walk in the ways of David, I will bless you"? We well, would say, but the Lord shouldn't do that. It's a division. He shouldn't bless the leader of a division. Why does the Lord bless the leader of a division? Because they're his people. The Lord does in the most remarkable way express himself, his faithfulness, his love and his grace in these ways, again and again and again. Then I also want you to note that the prophets represent the throne of God over again. Uh, days of defeat and decline. This is one of the most wonderful things about the whole book of kings. What is the key to the book of kingdom? kingship? Kingdom, the throne. What does it teach us? It teaches us this. Man may fail, but God never fails. Man, human kings may fail, but God's king will never fail. Do you know the prophets represent the throne of God? So let the throne collapse. Let the human king collapse, but God's king and God's throne is secure and triumphant, and all the way through you'll get the prophet coming with the voice of God from his throne. The wonderful thing That's something we ought also to learn in our day of decline departure and compromise. The Lord is on the throne and there's no difference to his throne and his king. His king is on his throne and that's a wonderful thing. And that's the thing that kept the prophets going. They knew the throne of God was secure. The kingdom of God ruleth over all. They knew that it that, that all this was all right. In the end, God was on the throne. And then I would also, lastly, and truly lastly, like you to note that kings does reveal the absolute necessity of distinguishing how to maintain the unity of all the people of God, and yet not to become involved in that which is on wrong ground. I say that again because I want you to study Kings in the this. Many of you are not clear on this. The Book of Kings teaches us how to distinguish the absolute necessity of distinguishing how to maintain the unity of all the people of God and yet not become involved on that in that which is on the wrong ground. Now that's a very, very wonderful thing. Somehow or other you and I are in days of decline and departure and compromise. Very well. What have we got to do? We have got to know how to maintain the unity of all the people of God with our very lifeblood. And yet, at the same time, not to become involved with anything which is erroneous, which is compromised, which is on the wrong ground. How this history of the divided kingdom teaches us this. First of all, the old prophet. Do you remember the old prophet? He lived in Israel. Do you remember the young man was sent to Bethel with a great message of God? He was told, you're not to sleep, you're not to eat, you're not to live, you're not to stay on that ground. You're to go with that message, deliver that message, because they are the people of God, and then come away. And then the old prophet came, and he said, now look here, I also am a prophet of the Lord. The young man said, but the Lord told me I wasn't to stay here. The old prophet said, ah, but the Lord has told me you are to stay here, you are to stay with me tonight. So the young man thought, well, He's an old man. He's a godly man. He's a child of God. He's had a word from the Lord. It can't be lost. Let's have fellowship. It can't, can't. Can't harm him. And he stayed the night. Do you know what happened? He lost his life as a result. What was this to teach us at the very beginning of the divided kingdom? It was to teach us the necessity of distinguishing, how to maintain the unity of all the people of God, and yet at the same time not to become involved with the people of God on the wrong ground. Now that's one of the, that needs discernment. There are many people without discernment. They cannot see clearly. We need discernment. Then I guess then you think of Elijah. He wasn't allowed to set up an altar with two stones. He had to set up an altar of twelve stones. And although he was living himself in Israel, he had to, you remember, call upon the Lord at the time of the evening oblation. Where was the time of the evening oblation? Right down there in the south, at Jerusalem, in the house of God. <coughs> he learnt how to maintain the unity of all the people of God, and yet not become involved <coughs> in that which was decadent and wrong. Then again you think of Jehoshaphat. I told you about Jehoshaphat. I don't think I need to spend time upon him. You know what happened to him? He so loved the people of God, he wanted to see them wedded. He wanted to see them brought back. He didn't want to see them any longer. He wanted a fellowship with them. He wanted, somehow, as it were, to embrace them all. So it's the best thing I can do, having failed twice, with his army and with his navy, he said, the best thing I can do is give my daughter, my son, my... the crown prince. It, he's a man, and that a woman. There can't be any trouble in that. He'll take the lead. She's bound to fall in with us. He won't go, uh, after them. But it was a big mistake. A big mistake. And everything was nearly lost through that simple, sentimental move of Jehoshaphat. And so we could go on through many others. Now, I will ask you a question, and we will close. If there is such a necessity to distinguish how to maintain the unity of all the people of God, and yet, at the same time, not to become involved, I want to ask you a question. Why does Chronicles ignore Israel completely? And only brings Israel's kings in when they touch Judah. Now why is that? I want to ask. Why? Why does Chronicles ignore them? And secondly, why does Kings put the kings of Israel first, always, and give their reigns at greater length and detail than Judah? Why? Because Chronicles is dealing with the house of God. It is dealing with the mystery, the thing called the mystery in the New Testament. The people of God who are going to bring Christ in. Judah. And because it is dealing with them, it confines itself to the people of God on the right ground. Kings deals preeminent place with the throne of God and God's king. Therefore, it keeps in view all the people of God and especially the people of God on the wrong ground, because he's king and his eye is on everyone. So king's keeps them in view. In other words, he's the king, and they are all his subjects, subjects, his people. They're all included. Let us remember that, that I don't think myself that the kingdom of God can be equated with the church of God. The house of God Is within the kingdom of God that is something very very wonderful we read that now but there we are we enter into the kingdom of God by birth and when we're there we are the loving subjects of the king's care and sovereignty let us remember that the house of God is something uh, that all needs a deep deep work of the cross if we're ever going to be incorporated into it and made part of it of the body of our lord